You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit hopekelowna.ca. It's a joy to have our kids with us, sitting in service with us today. At this time, ushers are going to be coming down and people are going to be coming down with kids packs. If you want a kids pack, which is just an opportunity for your your kids to uh, interact with the service with some little handy dandy little tools and and crafts. And then also there's Bibles coming around. If you don't have a Bible, make sure you lift your hand. We'd love for you to have a Bible for this morning to turn word. That's where we will be spending our time today is in God's word. If you don't own a Bible at all, then take one of the Bibles home with you. We want you to have that. That's free. That's that's so important for you to have the Word of God in your life. And so I encourage you to take one of those Bibles home, have it with you today, right? Even if it's not yours, just mark it up. That's fine. We don't mind. Mark it up. We want everything underlined, the whole thing just highlighted with details of what God is revealing to us through His Word. <clears throat> you know, I, I, um, I, love what we, I love coming out here. I love the beauty and the warmth of the Okanagan. I love that we're able to do services outside. That's really cool. And and I wonder if when people are driving by, if they're just like a little confused, see this stack of tents and this group of people, and they're a little wondering. I, I would imagine possibly there might even be some curiosity if what, what's really going on here is some kind of flash mob dance or something like that. Just a gathering of people, and they have all come with some rehearsed regiment. If you don't know what a flash mob dance is, it's this thing where people f- over the internet communicate about what dance moves to do, and then they show up and they surprise the community with a dance. I don't get it. Trust me, I do not get the, the, the interest in it, but maybe that's what people think. But the reality is we're not here to rehearse some activity, to, to put on a show. We're not here uh, to do that. We're here to pursue a personal relationship with the Lord and to give him glory for what he deserves. And be thankful that we're not doing a flash mob dance because I would be a horrible leader. You'd be doing embarrassing dance moves. But um, out of a rehearsed regiment, out of, a, uh, out of that rather than out of a personal relationship. There's a temptation for us to stay in the lanes of what looks Christian and what we think religiosity looks like. But whether you're a Christ follower today or whether you're just considering it, that temptation is there for us, whether it's we've been here for five minutes or we've been going and following Jesus for 50 years. Routine and copying the activity others can, can be a really safe way to look Christian, but it can be very devoid of life and freedom and authenticity. And today's passage in Mark chapter 2 is a passage that calls us to go after a relationship with Christ. We're meant to share a relationship with Jesus, our Savior. We're to let go of our grip on regimented religion, let go of how we've categorized even faith from secular things and cling tighter to a personal relationship and let that relationship guide us. So if you have your Bible with you, open it to Mark chapter 2. That's where we've been spending time over the past few weeks and months Mark chapter 2, verse 18 to 22. Now, before we read the passage, I want to give you a little bit of some context of what's been happening here in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so far, Jesus has been commissioned in his ministry. He has been baptized, and, and then he goes out and he fasts, and he faces the temptation from Satan. And then Jesus is demonstrating ministry to others. He's, he's healing people. He's teaching with authority. He's casting out demons. He's offering forgiveness of sins. And then we started to see who Jesus is hanging out with. He's calling and he's associating with 
fishermen and he's hanging out with outcasts and, and he's commending the faith of these vandal interrupters who are interrupting his teaching. He's hanging out with tax collectors and having meals with sinners. But the Gospel of Mark is about to take a slight turn away from the activities of Jesus and now it's going to be focused on the activity of his posse, of his disciples, of what they're doing. This passage this week and next week's passage is about the devotional and the religious life of Jesus Christ's followers. So this week, we, we, we see a question and a challenge regarding their fasting, and next week, we're going to see a question and challenge regarding how they Sabbath. So let's turn with Mark, Mark chapter 2, verse 18 to 22 is where we are today. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And he continues, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. See, this passage, it starts with a question. Why don't your disciples fast? That's the question. But Jesus doesn't really answer their question with some systematic theology of what fasting is really about. Even though that's kind of what they were hoping he would give, that's not how he answered. He, you see, they were comparing how John the Baptist's disciples fasted to how the Pharisees' disciples fasted to how Jesus' disciples didn't fast. And Jesus launches from their question regarding religious fasting into an opportunity, an opportunity to teach them of the nature of, of this new religion, this new religion that's based on a relationship, that Christ came to redeem sinners and offer a relationship with God. Jesus launches from their narrow-minded question about fasting into two metaphors, and these two metaphors paint a much larger picture for us today. Firstly, he has the metaphor of the bridegroom and the guests in verse 19 and 20, and this tells us about the relationships his followers are to have with him. How the bridegroom, and the, the bridegroom is like Christ and the guests are like his disciples. And that's to paint for us a picture of our relationship with Christ. But then he doesn't stop there. Jesus likes to go to the depths of our hearts, doesn't he? And he goes and he continues with this other metaphor of a cloth and cloths being sewn together and wine and wineskins. And he warns us of what can ruin that relationship that he's just described. So the bridegroom and the guests are about our relationship with Christ, and the cloths and the wineskin are, are a warning about what can ruin that relationship. And overall, this paints a picture of a, a, of a religion of relationship, not a religion of regiment, not a religion of this is sacred and that is secular. In this way, Jesus isn't just answering the question of why don't your disciples fast? He's giving a much larger paradigm of how disciples should consider all areas of faith, all areas of life. He's saying, you're asking the wrong question. Your ideology about fasting is like trying to attach something old to something new. It just won't work. 
And so before we get too far into this text, I think it'd be great for us to steep ourselves in the context of that is surrounding it. In order to do that, we need to understand a little bit about the nature of fasting. Fasting is intentionally not eating, intentionally not drinking, and this was done to make a point or a request to God. Fasting is a sign of repentance and a sign of turning from sin. It was a physical demonstration to yourself and to the Lord of your dependence on him, your need of him, more than your need for food and water. It was a way of pleading to the Lord. It's a way of, for ch- heart change. And, and it's a way for asking God to change your circumstances. It's a way to ask God to change in his judgment. It's a way to request wisdom and direction from God. And fasting was always partnered and is always partnered with prayer. Now, the Old Testament laws technically only demanded and commanded that you fast once a year. The Old Testament laws only said you needed to fast on the Day of Atonement, once a year. But throughout the Old Testament, we see that rulers and prophets regularly called the people to fast. And he called them to fast all together at once to to call out to the Lord. But then we also see moments of people individually fasting because they had needs. They wanted to be strengthened. They wanted to repent. They wanted to turn from their sins. Now, in the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, fasting had looked a little different. The Pharisees actually practiced fasting twice a week. They fasted on both Mondays and Thursdays, twice a week. And, and Jesus makes a few comments in other passages about how they fasted, right? The way that they fasted, it was very showy. It was very ostentatious. They, they made sure that everyone knew they were fasting by making their faces look pale and malnourished. They wanted to look, they wanted to be self-righteous. They were pious. It was all about them. And Jesus was directing, and he directs later on, us away from that kind of fasting. Now, it's possible that John the Baptist's disciples also fasted with the same regularity, like on Mondays and Thursdays, but they also could have been fasting at this point because at this point, John had been taken away from them. And they were fasting in need and want for God to intervene in the situation of John and mourning at his loss. But they all assumed that fasting was a necessary obligation of religion. These people who asked the question, they assumed that fasting was a necessary obligation of religion. And the reason why Jesus actually uses this illustration of a bridegroom and a wedding and guests is because it, it uh, sorry, the illustration of a bridegroom was because it was taught, it expected that when you went to a wedding, that you wouldn't fast at a wedding. If, when Jesus asked this question, the Pharisees and everyone, anyone who heard this question would have said, no, that's totally inappropriate. Oh, wow. That, no, you would never fast at a wedding. That's, that'd be ridiculous. In fact, even the Pharisees taught that you don't fast at a wedding. The Pharisees, even though they practiced fasting on Mondays and Thursdays, they would forego that fasting if they were at a wedding because you had a responsibility. You had a duty to celebrate the bridegroom. You had a responsibility to put your heart and your focus and your dedication into that. It was your obligation and your privilege as a wedding guest to treat the groom as he deserves, as he expects. You would forego your own personal fasting regiments and you would give your focus to the wedding and to the groom. And so Jesus, when he's talking about this, he's making his first point that he is the bridegroom and we must treat him as he deserves and as he expects. Jesus is the bridegroom. We need to make him the center of our life. And it's a big statement, to be honest. It's a big statement for him to say that he's the bridegroom. To be the bridegroom is to be the most important person at the party. It's to be the whole 
reason you're having a party. Jesus is saying he's so important. He's saying his presence is so valuable to his disciples that he is what they center their worship around. Now remember, the significance of the bridegroom demanded you defer your typical fasting regimen. And Jesus was claiming to be that significant. He's saying, I'm so important. I am the central figure of my followers' belief that having me with them was reason enough for them to defer their fasting to God. And, and by the way, if, I mean, if I came in here today and I said, oh, this whole party, you know, if you go to a party and you say, oh, this party's all about me, you'd be like, wow, that's really arrogant, right? Like, this guy's really full of himself. But Jesus is not being arrogant when he says this. Jesus is revealing the significance of who he is, and therefore the significance of what having a relationship with him is really about. Jesus is revealing that he came to offer a new, full, life-altering relationship, not some religion of regiment that meets our religious expectations. He's offering us, and he's offering his disciples and those who follow him a personal relationship with God. Not just with anybody, but with God. Rather than some regimented contract with God, it's a relationship with God. Jesus is God in the flesh. And so he offers a personal invitation to follow him. And that means for us it's such a beautiful thing that through the highs and through the lows of life, we aren't turning to a contracted relationship. We are turning to a personal God. A God who loves us. A God who is our friend. What a Joy it is to say that Jesus is our friend. A friend that is gracious. A friend that is patient. A friend that is powerful. He is God in the flesh. You know, human beings, we thrive on relationships. And a relationship with him is going to be the most life-giving relationship we could ever have. He knows us intimately. He knows us in detail. He knows us, warts and sin and all. And yet he loves us more than anyone else loves us. That's mind-blowing. That's unreal. Can't we see that this is more freeing? It's better to revolve our life around a relationship with Jesus than try to have a contract with him? A relationship with him, a friend of him. Money doesn't love you. You might love money, but it don't love you. Money doesn't love us. Your work doesn't love you. It doesn't love us. Even the most cherished and closest person in your whole entire life, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a parent, they actually don't really know truly the worst things about you like Christ does. And they aren't perfect in their love for you like Christ is. And yet we let these have more say in our lives than Christ often. I do. With Jesus saying that he is the bridegroom, he is offering us the most important, intimate, life-giving relationship that we could ever have. He isn't just self-declared the one we celebrate. He actually even earns the right to be celebrated because he lays his life down for us. He dies for us and he offers us forgiveness of sins. He justifies us before God. He gives us eternal life. So it's not just like any other relationship. As followers of Christ, we owe him way more than a duty-bound celebration. We owe him our whole lives. And so with Christ as the bridegroom, as the central figure of our lives, we filter our life through him. 
We have to have a Jesus filter for everything around us. We need to recognize that if he's the central figure of our lives, we need to consider everything about our life as it revolves around him, as it goes through him. And in that way, everything goes through a Jesus filter. Nothing. Here's the thing. If everything is related back to our relationship with Jesus, then nothing is secular. Nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. If everything has to do with Jesus, there is nothing that is secular. Everything is sacred. And we look at everything and we ask questions like, how does this relate back to my relationship with Jesus? What does this say about Jesus? What does Jesus say about this? What does God's word say about this? A relationship with him should, should shape how we see and interact with every part of the world around us. And maybe you're thinking, and I was thinking this, what does Jesus have to do with Netflix? Like, that's what I thought this week. What does Jesus have to do with my hobbies or my purchases? Maybe, what does Jesus have to do with my frustrating work or my tense marriage? What does Jesus have to do with uh, the dire financial needs I have? What does Jesus have to do with every area of my life? But Jesus wants to offer himself to be present in all these, to give direction in all these, to give warnings, to give hope. We open our Bibles and we look for what he has to say about these things first. That's where we go. We look at life and we go, oh, what does God's word say about this? And I can't tell you how much better I believe my life and our lives could be if we just more regularly considered, what does the Bible say about this? Just ask that question. Somebody's saying something and they're like, what do you think we should do this weekend? You're like, oh, what does the Bible say about this? <laughs> right? Should we skip church on Sunday? I don't know. What does the Bible say about this? The Bible is filled with the words of Jesus and he warns us and he instructs us and he commands us and he tells us the truth when everything else tells us lies. And then after we've considered it through God's word, yes, sometimes there's still clarity that's needed and so we consider it even further through prayer and through fasting and we ask God, would you lead us? Would you prompt us by your spirit? Would you direct us? And so when it comes to the pleasures of life, we ask questions of the spirit. Does this does this pleasure increase my enjoyment of Jesus or does this pleasure compete for my enjoyment of him? With regards to hardships and trials and difficulties, we ask, does this difficulty increase my dependence on him or does it increase my independence from him? Now, maybe you're like me as I was when I first was reading this passage. I thought, this is crazy. <laughs> this is radical. And maybe you're not thinking that everything can be about Jesus, but that's what he modeled. That's what he did. He came to interact with every part of our world and experience every temptation. He empathizes with every temptation because he wanted to model that everything has to do with him. And what he offers is this. He offers a life free from slavery to sin. He offers a yoke that is easy. He offers a burden that is light. It's a path that is narrow, but he says he will shepherd us. He will be with us. He will make us to lie down in green pastures. Jesus is offering a relationship with him that is relevant to every area of our lives. And maybe, maybe you've been calling the shots with your gut, like I have. Maybe you've been saying, this area of my life doesn't really matter to Jesus. I'll just do what I want there. Maybe today he's laying on your heart something that you've been rejecting, ignoring his promptings on. 
an area of obedience that he's calling you to. See, with Christ as the bridegroom, as the central figure of our lives, we can base everything around a relationship with him. We find out what he says about these things. We discover and, and trust that what he says and what he tells us to do is hopeful and good. See, Christ offers himself as our friend, as our focus. He says, I know you. I know you better than you know yourself. He says, I know you and I love you. I have died for you. He says, I will walk with you. I will make you better and I will make you holy. What a beautiful friendship to have. The most precious friendship we can have. But if Jesus has something to say or do with everything of my life, are we saying that I'm just going to have to make more changes? <laughs> I'm exhausted from making changes. I'm ex maybe you're there. Maybe you're there and you're exhausted from trying to just keep being like Jesus, but that's actually not how he wants us to relate to him. Maybe for years you've tried, we've tried managing our lives and managing our joy through do's and don'ts. Maybe we've tried feeling closer to God through doing the right things, through regimented religion, trying to make God happy, trying to force God's blessings. But that actually leaves us empty, leaves us more disappointed. It's exhausting. It won't feel fulfilling and it won't feel right if you try to manipulate God through do's and don'ts. You see, making Christ the central person of our life is good, but how we pursue him matters. Because you can make him the central, life, the central part of your life out of fear. You can make him the central part of your life out of manipulation. And that's where Jesus makes his second point with this beautiful picture, this relationship that he offers. Jesus is saying that his disciples relate to him like the wedding guests at a wedding. And we are the wedding guests. And here's the beauty of a wedding guest. You are invited to enjoy him, not to fear him. You don't have to earn your way into the wedding. You've been invited. And there's two beautiful aspects to this illustration of a wedding guest in this bridegroom. Firstly, that wedding guests are invited, all right? And secondly, that we're meant to enjoy the groom. Invited and enjoyed. I pray and I hope that those words will release you today from a works-based righteousness that they will release you to know that you have been invited by Jesus, the bridegroom, that you are invited to enjoy him. These two words can give us so much life, so much freedom. They keep us from trying to earn God's favor and force God's blessing. So firstly, Jesus invites us, right? He, he's inviting you today, maybe to receive him for the first time or maybe to return to him after some waywardness. We don't have a one-time offer kind of relationship with our Savior. He invites us back from wandering. When we hit our lowest, he is there wanting us still. It's wonderful. Just think about what we've been seeing, the types of people he's been hanging out with in the past couple weeks is astounding. Even if you curse like a fisherman or cheat like a tax collector, you're invited. You're invited to celebrate the bridegroom. You've been invited. Jesus knows all the worst things about us, all our hidden pride, all our hidden ego, all those subtle attempts at manipulation, all that, those acts of passive aggression. He sees all of that. He sees our selfishness, and he still loves us? No one loves me like that, except him. He still invites us into a relationship with him. It's not conditional upon change, but rather it's an open invitation that compels us to change. 
So regardless of how you've come in today, you are invited. Regardless of what you've done this week, you are invited. Regardless of what guilt and regret you carry, you are invited. Jesus isn't stacking the team with his best. Look at us. We're not the best. I'm not the best. I can just remember a few times being picked last for dodgeball. Jesus isn't stacking his team with the best. He's inviting everyone to the celebration. And then secondly, our purpose is to enjoy him. A wedding guest, their job was, and their expectation was to enjoy the feast and relish in it. That sounds pretty good. I love food. I love celebrating. Even though I'm not good at it, I still love dancing. They were supposed to relish in the celebrations because something amazing was happening. Someone truly special was there. That's so freeing for us that we're meant to enjoy him, that putting Jesus at the center of our life is not about obligation. It's not about duty. It's not about expectations like everything else in life. It's primarily about enjoying him. That's a weight off our shoulders because we make it something else so quickly, don't we? We're like the guys asking this question about fasting. Why don't your disciples fast? Shouldn't they? Isn't that a fair expectation and an obligation? So far, your disciples seem to be doing a lot of partying a lot of feasting. Don't they have duties and obligations? Don't they have some kind of regiment, some kind of contract that they have to keep up with? And Jesus is saying, they don't have a regiment. They don't have a contract with God. They have a relationship. They're not living in the categories of sacred and secular. They have a relationship in which they're invited to relish in and take pleasure in the bridegroom. That's the invitation for us today. We're invited like wedding guests to celebrate him, to see how amazing he is, to put aside our duties to everything else, and to give our life over in celebration of him. At the youth group that I used to get to serve in, we had a saying, we had t-shirts made that said, our parties are awesome. (laughs) We used to say, our parties are awesome. And it's not because we could really compete with the world's parties, We said our parties are awesome because we actually had something worth celebrating. We actually had a relationship worth celebrating. We had a Jesus and a person worth celebrating. Everything else is about football. Yeah, so your football team won. I know the risen Savior Jesus Christ who set me free from sins and saves me from eternal damnation. That's worth celebrating. Amen? Yeah, thank you. Somebody's getting it. (laughs) That's worth celebrating. And so our parties are awesome. Hope Bible Church parties are awesome. Ain't no party like a Hope Bible Church party. Because we have a Jesus to celebrate. We have a God who resurrects people from the dead. We have a God who sets captives free. Our parties are awesome and our worship should be passionate. And our, our worship for our God should not be compelled out of obligation or duty, but of love, out of joy, out of freedom. Oh, it's amazing. Because every other relationship in this world, it has duties and expectations. I should not have done, I was just thinking about this now. We're doing a kid's service, and I can't tell you how many times I've said duties today. That's just so silly. If you're immature like me, you'll get it. All right. Every other relationship in this world, it has obligations. It has expectations, right? Every other relationship. And we become slaves to them. And those relationships, they're contingent on our efforts. They're contingent on us keeping up our end of the bargain. 
We have obligations to our bosses, to our clients, even to our families. We have commitments to try and live up to the expectation of our spouses and of our friends. We have deadlines to meet. We have communication pathways. We're trying to always be more effective, more efficient. And if we don't do these things, we risk losing the relationship. Here's the good news today for us. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is not secured by your abilities, by your works. It is not secured by our efforts or our obligations. It is secured by Jesus Christ alone and by his blood and by his sacrifice. It is secured by him. And he offers that relationship freely. Free, completely free. He paid the entrance fee to the party and he secures it by his resurrection and he, and he secured it by giving up his own life. So your relationship with him, it's not secured by you. So stop trying to force that. The invitation is to let go of your grip on everything else and enjoy him. And that means for us to repent and to turn from our sins and then come and enjoy him and let everything flow out of that enjoyment. Let everything flow out of that relationship with him. But wait, Brett, what about all the commands? What about all the changes he expects? Well, look at this passage. It says that they would fast. Why did they fast? They fasted because the bridegroom was taken away from them. They fasted because they missed him. And why did they miss him? They missed him because they loved him. Your affections will grow and overflow into your actions. Our worship is to be the overflow of our actions, or sorry, of our affections for him. Our giving is to be done in freedom and in joy. Jesus literally says, do not give out of compulsion. We read our Bible not to prove how smart we are. We read our Bible to know him better. We read our Bible to enjoy him more. We serve sacrificially, not to impress him or impress anyone. We serve because we saw him doing it. I just want to be just like him. We risk other relationships by saying things that are truthful and telling the good news of the gospel. We tell them and we risk those relationships because those relationships are just not as important as our relationship with him. That might be hard. Trust me. I'm not even going to say it might be hard. That is hard. But as we find more joy in him, it becomes easier. Maybe you've lost sight of this like I lose sight of this. I needed to hear this week that I need to enjoy Jesus because we regiment our relationship with him. We try to please God through actions. We try to force his blessings. And the reason that you might have originally chosen to follow Christ and surrender to him, maybe that's been tainted by some performance mentality. That happens. Maybe you've given up because you just can't keep up with the Christian Joneses around you. Maybe you're exhausted from pretending. I think so many of us, we just lose touch with the, the value of enjoying Jesus. So let's come back to the heart of our worship. Let's make it all about him. Let's relish in the fact that we've been invited by the Savior of the world, regardless of the, our status, regardless of our actions. Let's relish in the fact that he wants us to enjoy him first and foremost, and that all of life is to serve that purpose of enjoying him more, to glorifying him more. This is so freeing, but we stray from this, and we, 
And it sounds perfect. It sounds beautiful. But what happens is we end up abandoning that simple mentality of enjoying Jesus. We start living under obligation. We start living that way and under regimented religion. We keep categorizing, well, I'll do these things for Jesus and I think I could just do whatever I want otherwise. And we end up clinging more tightly to actions that we do for Jesus than we do to him personally. Our grip on living up to expectations is stronger than our grip on our relationships some days. And that's why Jesus continues. That's why he didn't just stop. He continues and Jesus wants to make his third point that we need to cling to him and not the rest. Cling to him personally and not the rest. Or we risk ruin and we risk waste. Turn with me into verse 21. We just need to read this again. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. See, cl- clothes, cloths, and, and uh, wineskins, they had an elasticity to them. And if you paired something with a strong elasticity to something that had no give, then it would tear and it would waste these materials, especially with wineskins. Wineskins were the hide of an animal that you would use and that you would actually use the neck as the spout for a new wineskin. And what would happen is you'd put new wine into a new skin, into the new hide of that animal, because the fermentation process would actually expand that skin with the new wine. And so if you took an old wineskin, which had already become expanded, it had been brittle, it doesn't expand anymore, then you put new wine and that fermentation process starts, it will burst the wineskin and the wine would be spilt. And this was like a regular home economics thing in Jesus' day, all right? They would have seen somebody walking by with a big tear in their, their clothes and they would have said, ah, You tried the old new cloth on an old cloth trick, didn't you? We've all done it. Now we can see your armpits, you know? Um, They they would have walked by a home and, that smells kind of like fermenting wine. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, they did the old, put the the new wine in the old wineskin thing. It's a big mess, isn't it? Yeah, oh, I've been there. Oh, rookie mistake, we all do it. Right? This was a regular home economics thing. And I, I was trying to think of a modern example for myself. But to be honest, I'm not much of a homemaker. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm especially not much of a cook. And, and by saying I'm not much of a cook, I am quite underrating it. I am pretty well useless in the kitchen. I can wash dishes. Um, but actually, there is one thing I should give a little credit for. There's one thing that I'm pretty good at making, okay? There's one thing. And you know what? I don't think people really appreciate this fine art of this culinary genre. But I am really, really, really good at making a bowl of cereal. Like a, a really, it's, it's like a perfect balanced thing of cereal to milk ratio in the bowl. Can't be a certain type of bowl, certain type of spoon. Mm, I should make a cookbook. All right. Here's the reality. And this, sadly, this is the only example I could think of. You, if you leave cereal out, what happens? If you leave it in the milk, it gets soggy, right? It gets soggy and mushy and it's not, it doesn't have that crunchy goodness. You can't just add some fresh Cheerios. And just make it better, can you? That's not going to be good enough. You need a brand new bowl of cereal if you want it to be done right. If you just try to add the Cheerios, everything's ruined. Wasting the Cheerios, wasting the bowl. 
we should get somebody else to help me with making these illustrations. All right. Um, <clears throat> he, see, Jesus is using a practical home economics picture to describe what kind of ruin can happen to our relationship with him. Jesus is using this relationship, this illustration, to say to his questioners, your question about fasting, that's old mentality. That's an old regimented form of religion. Trying to stitch that old ideology to this new relationship that Jesus Christ offers, it just won't work. It will ruin the new relationship that he's offering. A work-based contract with God isn't the same as a personal relationship. A personal relationship with God is based on Jesus' merit, on his sacrifice, on his resurrection. It's completely different. They're completely incompatible. A personal relationship with Jesus is about revolving our whole lives around him. It's not about setting aside specific religious acts and then going and living as we please. To be a follower of Christ, he's saying, you need to let go of the old ideologies and cling tighter to a personal relationship with Jesus. Because if you cling as tightly to the things and the old ideologies, the ideas that we have carried before, and we try to cling to Jesus, they will compete and it will burst and it will bring ruin. And so the warning for us today is this, be careful what we cling to. We need to be careful what we cling to. We all have habits. We all have ideologies. We all have things that we think should apply to Jesus, just like these questioners did. Things that we think will earn God's favor, things that we think that God maybe never can forgive, or maybe there's areas of our life that we think are completely irrelevant to him. And I'm saying that Jesus is offering a new relationship and a new life. Following Christ might mean, not might, it will mean letting go of some of these things and loosening our grip on them. Now, I'm not saying that this will mean a life with no joy, absent of joy and relevance. I'm, I'm, Jesus offers a new wine for us. It's a new beautiful and flavorful, a vibrant life with him. It's to be properly paired with new life and new, just like new wine to new wineskin. And the reason why Jesus does this is because Christ's relationship that he offers us, it has some exclusivity to it. And if we won't let go of our traditional expectations, if we cling to anything tighter than we cling to Jesus, we risk tearing our lives at the seams. And so... Jesus and the gospel, they, they don't fit all ideologies. They don't fit all paradigms. They don't fit all expectations that we bring to him. But rather, he offers something new for us, something more fulfilling, more satisfying, and more freeing. So we need to cling tightly to him and not to our regiment. Let, grip, let our grip on everything else loose. We need to pursue Jesus in the proper order. We need to put him first. And after we've put him first and we've accepted that, we have to accept that our, our role and our responsibility is that we've been invited to enjoy him and then we build our lives as malleable around that. If I asked you today, if I asked you this, how often should I get my wife flowers? If I asked you that question, you could have a lot of different answers. And maybe you would just start with, you know what, you should get her flowers every three weeks. Go to this store, get these flowers. You'll be safe, bud. Maybe that's what you would offer, a safe rate, a regiment that should do well based off of our gut feeling, based off of what we see around us. 
But you also might answer and challenge me a little bit. You might go, why are you getting your wife flowers? Are you getting her flowers, like, because you're in the doghouse? Are you getting her flowers because it's just a matter of time before you mess up again and you just want some good graces? Are you getting flowers because you're scared? Are you getting flowers to impress her, to show how great of a husband you are and how great she could be? Manipulation? Or are you just getting her flowers because you love her? Are you getting her flowers because you enjoy her? Are you getting her flowers because your love spills over in, into creative floral arrangements? <laughs> but more importantly, even before we ask that question, we should really ask the question, does your wife even like flowers? <laughs> right? Does your wife, I got it, amen, that's hilarious. Does your wife even like flowers? What type of flowers does she like? What if she tells you all she likes is tulips and she doesn't like anything else and you go out vibrantly, joyously getting her roses? You see, similarly, we need to consider our life with Christ in the proper order. We need to stop starting with what should I do and how do I impress and and even stopping with our own motives and just go to Christ and say, what does he want? <laughs> what does Christ want? What does he say? And then go from there. And, go why, and then go from there and say, okay, but now why am I doing this thing? Am I doing this to impress Jesus? Am I doing this because I'm scared of him? Am I doing this because I'm trying to force him to do something good for me? Or have I just enjoyed the fact that he's my savior and my king and I love him? And I'm doing this because I enjoy him. I'm doing this because I've been invited. And then after all of that, after all of that, we figure out what the regiment of our life is. We figure out what is, what is to be applied to him. We need to live out the activity of our faith out of the joy of knowing who he is. Would you bow your heads? as we just consider for a moment. I'm going to invite our prayer partners and our band up at this moment. There's another time that Jesus talks about a wedding. And the time that he talks about a wedding, it's actually a warning. It's a warning. He warns us about missing the celebration. He warns us that there will be a deadline. You know, Jesus never stops wanting us to come and he never stops being willing to have us, but there is a deadline to joining the celebration. And the deadline is this. The deadline is his return and the deadline is your own death. Now, the reality is we might think that's far off, but those can be quite sudden. He describes his return like something unexpected, like a thief in the night. It will be too late by the time it happens. So we need to not delay in responding to what God's word is saying. We need to not delay in how it's prompting our hearts. We need to not delay in responding. And that's not just a response for those who don't know Jesus. That's a response that we need to not delay. If we've been living in a works-based righteousness, if we've been trying to impress and manipulate Jesus, if we've stopped putting him at the center, don't delay today. Respond in prayer, in worship. Let's all of us, Let's come to him, come back to the heart of the worship.
Let's make it all about him. Every area of our life, Lord Jesus, would you do that in every area of our life? Let's pray even now. Lord God, we ask. We ask you. We ask you to lead our hearts. Guide us. Our good shepherd, would you guide us away from performance mentality? Would you guide us away from clinging tightly to the world, clinging tightly to old ideologies. Help us to cling to you, our bridegroom. Help us to relish in you. Lead us away from a mundane and stale contractual relationship. Would you bring us back to the heart, the heart of enjoying what our risen Savior has done on our behalf, would you make us a church of awesome parties celebrating you? Because you're the only thing really worth celebrating. Would you lead us, O oh God, in this? We pray and we sing in response. In your name I pray, amen.